Welcome to episode 14 of the Untethered Podcast. Today we have Robin Merkel-Walsh with us. She is a licensed speech pathologist and certified orofacial myologist with 24 plus years of experience. She's an international lecturer and author with Talk Tools. She is employed by the Ridgefield Board of Education and has her own private practice in New Jersey. Robin has authored and co-authored texts, therapy manuals, and articles in addition to ASHA and IAOM posters and presentations. Quick disclaimer, all information content and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Thank you, Robin, so much for being with us today. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Absolutely. So the first thing I want to talk about is, you know, a little bit of a background on you and how you became interested in OMDs. And we'll talk about what OMDs are um, and TOTS. Okay. So I had a really unique experience um, because I went into college um, as a dance major. Um, I trained my whole life. So I was all about movement. But being a dance major in college, um, what is that saying that you're a, a big fish in a small pond and then you become a little fish in a big pond? Mm. That's basically what happened to me. I trained my whole life in tap, jazz, Broadway dancing. I did like the Macy's Day Parade, things of that nature, and went away to college. And that's when contemporary dance uh, first started. So I realized like I needed to do something and I didn't know what. And I happened to get sick, and I tell this story all the time when I teach. I got really bad, like, upper respiratory infection. And my aunt, who was a speech therapist, I didn't even know what it was at the time, (laughs) was at my college. She was an adjunct there, and she worked in the Parent Infant Center. And she was supervising students. So she said, listen, if you can get over, I have a care package for you. You know, I made some soup or what have you. And I went over there and she was in the clinic and I looked through the two-way mirror and she was feeding an infant with a diagnosis of Down syndrome. And I didn't know what she was doing, but the next day I changed my major. I went to meet with the director and um, we still had undergraduate. I'm happy to see that's coming back, by the way, because I think... My education, six and a half years going straight through having the undergraduate, you know, was very helpful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I jumped right in. And because I had Aunt Janine, who I owe everything to, and of course, other people that we'll talk about, um, you know, she would bring me to state conventions and continuing education workshops. She would, you know, sponsor me or had the student fee. She would bring me along. And one of my first workshops that really sat with me was Sarah Rosenthal Johnson. Mm. And uh, I learned about the horn hierarchy and the straw hierarchy with talk tools. And it was at a state convention. So it was short, you know, it wasn't the full day. And I went, you know, into my course and we were doing this clinic 
on, you know, your partner has an L sound problem and, you know, the partner was doing gliding and, you know, I love you, mommy type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I had to come in and show how I was going to treat this. And I pull a talk tools, which was we, back then we were innovative therapists international. I pull that out and I start doing what Sarah taught me. And my professor kind of slammed her hands on the desk and said, Miss Merkel, see me after class. And what's funny is back then the oral motor controversy really hadn't started. This was back in the late nineties. Okay. Um, no, actually wasn't even in the late nineties. I wish that then I would be 10 years younger. This was in the early nineties that this happened. See, I'm wishing myself to be 37 <laughs> okay. instead of 47. Age is just a number. <laughs> yes. Um, but what was going on then is the cycles approach was really taking off. And my professor worked with Barbara Hudson and Harriet Klein, uh, you know, doing her dissertation. So she wanted me to be using those methods. And that was my first little um, taste of the future and what would come. But that I started with this, you know, undergraduate and graduate school, I took courses. And then you know, I did my externship with multiply disabled children. A lot of the children had a diagnosis of Down syndrome, neurological impairment, autism. It was before the schools had a um, specific classification for autism. Hmm. This was back in like 1994. And I was really intrigued by their mouths. Um, you know, noting the drooling, thumb sucking, mouth breathing. and when I was done with that externship, I went into the public school and I was kind of disappointed that they placed me in quote unquote regular education. I'm like, Oh wow. What am I going to do? The fishing game all day and S bingo. Like that's so not me. I like a challenge. I'm really into this oral motor. And I started looking at the mouths of the kids in my school that had quote unquote, developmental articulation issues. And I'm like, wow, this kid has a swallowing problem. I started going in the lunchroom and seeing how they were eating. This one has a tongue thrust. Let me look this up. And that's when I first started doing my training with the IAOM. And um, this was back in the day, um, Roberta Pierce was one of my mentors and I did some training with Bob Mason, with Sandra Holtzman, um, the Zimmermans at the convention. And as that was happening, I was also linking up uh, in a more formal role at Talk Tools, and I had written my SMILE program. Mm -hmm. And when I wrote the SMILE program, um, which is the Systematic Intervention for Lingual Elevation, it was with those regular ed students in mind, but right away I started saying, hey, you know what? Um, we need something that works with the special needs population. And Sarah and Lori were really doing that, not really knowing they were doing it. You know, they were focused on feeding and they were focused on, look at me, you know, kids who can't repeat words or auditory visual cues. So we started really all piecing all of that together in terms of tongue tie. And back then, to tell you the truth, we didn't talk about buckle and um, lip ties. We focused mainly on the tongue. And if you look 
going back to 1998 and my original version of the SMILE program. That's how long I've been teaching clinicians to look at tethered oral tissue, but we called it tongue tie. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of buzz and everybody talks about now and it's cross-disciplinary, but, but <laughs> this really isn't new information, no. you know? So when I see it out there, uh, who's first or who is the first book? It's not really about that. It's right. about an evolution of each profession looking at it with a different set of eyes, but it's been around for a really long time. And the good thing now is that when we see it and we diagnose it, we have people willing to treat it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, part of my evolution was meeting Anthony Yan, the ENT. He, he was in New Jersey for a long time too, and he's now only in New York. But he was my doctor, and I said to him one day, I need you to do phrenectomies. And he's like, what? (laughs) And he goes, I know how to do a phrenectomy. I said, no, but I need you to do the phrenectomies because this is before people were using, you know, lasers. And Mm -hmm. you had to basically, like, stand on your head naked to get a physician to perform (laughs) a phrenectomy. Because why? Why would we do that? It's okay. You know, it's not... That's why in all these years I've been teaching my tongue thrust course, I focus, focus, focus on you need to make sure there's not a restriction. And working with Dr. Yan, um, he enlightened me to so many things. And, you know, writing a book and making a course about TOTS, we had been working on this a long time before people knew we were working on it because Lori was teaching it in her feeding class and her pre-feeding class. I was teaching it in tongue tie and it was just a huge evolution. Mm -hmm. Um, But now, you know, the big problem is that a lot of the talk about tots is very infant focused, breastfeeding focused. I'm a little in a little bit of a different position in my practice Um, and being a full time public school therapist, I'm seeing these patients when months, years, decade has gone by and a child has gone through tons of speech therapy Mm -hmm. that hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. And we have a whole subset of children and adults with special needs that are not getting the help they need because it's it's not being talked about enough when we're discussing TOTS, when we're assessing TOTS, Children with special needs in general are getting overlooked in terms of OMDs um, because it's like, oh yeah, they have bigger problems than that. Right. You know, they need right. to learn to toilet or they or have a self-limited diet. They say they're not cognitively intact enough sometimes to do the right. therapy. So, so what are you like? How are you working with that population? With this well, it, I'm glad you brought that up. They're not cognitively intact, and I think this is important to bring up because. The history of the IAOM and you're a calm, I'm a calm. Mm-hmm. So we studied all this, right? We had to study the history and what did Dr. Straub do and what did the speech therapist do in that marriage of dentistry and um, speech pathology, right? And the, historically, myofunctional therapy came in when there was a need for orthodontics, right? So back then... Kids weren't getting orthodontics until much later. So when I first started learning about oral facial myology, it was, you know, seven, eight or up, you know, for patients who are cognitively intact. 
And now since TOTS has come to be, there's kind of, um, as you know, a lot of controversy. What's the age who can be doing it? So I wrote a blog for Diane Barr, Mm -hmm. um, very similar to what we're discussing in what am I doing? Okay. I'm categorizing when you have children zero to four, um, it's difficult for them to follow directions. Um, it's difficult for them to understand what oral resting posture is and right. do volitional tests, right? right? Um, the age where we start myofunctional therapy now is four and up. And this is a change from when I started in terms of classifying. So when I look at special needs children um, or adults, I look at them in that, you know, subset population of dealing with zero to four. And it's my opinion that speech pathologists who are also practicing oral facial myofunctional therapy really need to have a foundation on normal mouth development. Yes. Because this is what drives us when we're looking at a special needs child. We may see the obvious. A diagnosis of Down syndrome is the easiest to um, make this connection with in terms of, you know, Sarah Johnson wrote about, Rosenfeld Johnson wrote about this years ago, the myths of Down syndrome, how people think children with Down syndrome have a tongue that's too big for their mouth. No, they have low tone. They think that um, you know, it just is normal that they breathe through their mouth. No, it's a series of events with the oral resting posture and the palate and raising the floor of the sinus and things of this nature that we see a lot about of, you know, on social media and people teaching courses in neurotypical patients and what's happening with them in terms of TOTS. But I'm seeing this special needs for the past 20 years in, and it being ignored. It's being ignored in early intervention. It's being ignored in the school systems. And, you know, kids are coming in three, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, and they have that red flag, um, both structural and functional in terms of open mouth posture they have upper lip insufficiency, they have low forward tongue resting posture, they're always congested, they're grinding their teeth, they're snoring, they have a malampati of a three or four, um, they have injury bumps on the insides of the cheeks, graphic tongue, feeding issues, and, and swallowing issues, and self-limited diets and articulation issues. So... What I'm doing is I'm looking at my foundational skills in oral motor because, you know, as the board chair of the Oral Motor Institute, the way I see this is it's, a, it's an umbrella. So we have oral motor, and when we talk about oral motor, we talk about infants. Um, we talk about normal mouth development. We talk about feeding and the evolution of oral motor skills and pre-feeding skills and where they need to be for a safe and effective nutritive feeding. And then we look at oral placement mm -hmm. is the connection between the articulators and the correct placement that we need for speech clarity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, this is an extension of Van Riper's phonetic placement approach. 
what's the difference? Um, back in the 50s and 60s, therapists grabbed whatever they could. They were grabbing um, matchbooks and feathers and rubber bands and pipe cleaners and all types of things that weren't supposed to be in a kid's mouth or an adult's mouth for that matter. And, you know, pioneers and inventors like Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson and Arx Therapeutic, they made tools that were safer. And then everybody kind of got up in arms about that. And then we have oral facial myology. Um, So it's all under an umbrella. And this is why you know, when we talk about feeding, we're talking about IBCLCs and occupational therapists and speech pathologists. And when we talk about oral placement, we're talking about speech pathologists. And, and with feeding, I, I should mention, we're talking about PTs too, because the positioning is so important. Yeah. And then when we're talking about oral facial myology, of course, the RDH is very critical mm-hmm. um, and, and the dentist and the orthodontist. And then surrounding that, you have your caregivers, your ENTs, your GI specialists. So it's a really huge team. And when you get into special needs, you have to add in the behaviorists and the teachers, okay? It's very confusing for people because what's starting to happen is people are confusing feeding therapy with oral facial myofunctional therapy. Uh So when we talk about TOTS, you know, TOTS can affect that zero to four population, breastfeeding, bottle feeding, purees, solid feeding, straw, cup, speech articulation, dental health, are the teeth erupting at the right time? Are they falling out at the right time? Are there dental caries? Is there, you know, halitosis I find in very young children and that shouldn't be there. Um, So we need our dental professionals to be doing screenings and assisting with tox care. We need our IBCLCs, but this population, just like the special needs population is not receiving oral facial myofunctional therapy. Correct. Yeah. So what I look at, you know, there's this baby myofunctional baby myo. um, And I know there's great OTs and PTs that I'm friendly with and I admire very much, but we debate about a lot about this because the work that I'm doing and the pathways that Diane Barr, that Pam Marshalla, mm-hmm. that um, Christy Brackett, and I don't want to leave anyone out, Lori, Lori Overland mm-hmm. and Jerry Logeman and all the feeding mm-hmm. specialists that paved yeah. the pathway for us. Suzanne mm. Evans Morris, mm-hmm. Dunn Klein. Um, it's that work that I'm using with special needs children, and that's the work that we use with our infants, that we use with our toddlers to keep them on the right path of oral facial development through pre-feeding and feeding that's preventative of OMDs. Yes. And when we're, we're seeing special needs and there's a tongue thrust and there's tots, um, we can use those principles from Talk Tools and Diane Barr and Pam Marshalla and all these wonderful um, godmothers or fairy godmothers of um, oral motor mm-hmm. and use those principles to take OMT, which is very active and volitional, and make it passive and fun. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm glad that you bring that up because, I mean, just the past couple of weeks, I've had a handful of clients call and say, I have a two-year-old and the dentist diagnosed a tongue tie and, you know, said we need myofunctional therapy. And I'm like, 
every education day. starts here. I'm like, it's not myofunctional therapy. If you have a two-year-old, it is feeding therapy or, you know, for the babies, we're doing pre-feeding or we're doing, you know, whatever the case may be. And um, it's hard to explain because it's all yeah. over social media and parents yeah. are really confused. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that goes back to also, you know, the history of the IAOM and why only RDHs and SLPs and dentists are certified as comms. Yeah. And, you know, um, I talk about it in my TOTS class a lot, and I know sometimes people get upset about it and, it, and it's difficult to discuss, but you can't just tack like oral facial myofunctional therapist to the end of, a, of you know, of another license because... This is in the scope of practice of specific licenses. And that doesn't mean that our colleagues and friends that support us and support these patients, it's very needed. OTs needed, PTs needed, mm-hmm. chiropractic, the body work, you know, the lactation um, part of this, especially when we're dealing with infants. But I always say, you know, that doesn't mean that a, a lactation specialist that you know, really knows a lot about tots and oral motor and feeding in infants shouldn't be doing myofunctional therapy with older children and adults, just like um, in reverse, if you don't have specific infant feeding um, in your scope of practice, you can't just pass off the myofunctional um, principles and perform them on an infant. And I feel the same way about special needs. It's a special population. It comes with Different problems, um, you know, for example, um, working with children on the autism spectrum for many years, you're dealing with a lot of sensory integration problems and a lot of behaviors. Yeah. And it's not like classic OMT where the patient comes in and you identify the problem and why their thumb shouldn't be in their mouth or, you know, we're going to, our goal is to our tongue to be in the right position when we're watching TV and things like this, Mm -hmm. this child's going to come in and you go to touch their face to do an eval and you're going to have a big problem. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole nother skill set that comes with addressing OMDs in special needs population. I have training in applied behavioral analysis. I have training in verbal behavior. I have training in sensory integration. I have training in, you know, SOS approach to feeding and, and K2Me. Um, I've worked with um, AEIOU approach as, you know, Nina Johansson. There's so much to learn when you're dealing with special needs yeah. because there's a bunch of steps you have to take before. Mm-hmm. And it's that pre-feeding, feeding connection yeah. that moves you toward being able to work on myofunctional concerns. And this was the premise of the book that Lori and I wrote. And it's very task analyzed. And when you take what's in that book, you can apply it to infants, you can apply it to special needs, you can apply it to children, and you can apply it to adults, because we've organized it moving from passive to active. Mm. So for example, if I'm working with a neurotypical child who's five years old, and I I want them to elevate their tongue after, before and after a phrenectomy, because we know how important pre-op care is, I'm going to be showing them exactly what I want them to do. And maybe I'm going to use a sticky spot, or maybe I'm going to use a little candy powder up there, but I'm going to have them active. Yes. I have a five-year-old on the autism spectrum that needs a phrenectomy. My pre-op care could go on for six months. Right. Just 
getting them to allow me to use a Liper or I'm very excited because um, I just got some new tools that were sent to me from Dr. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Dr. Yuang Chu. Oh yeah, I just got my invoice today. Yeah, <laughs> to order them. <laughs> and you know, working with his um, lingual sticks, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, letting a Z vibe in the mouth so I can manually lift that tongue for that patient because they don't have volitional control. And, you know, children with autism, there's a 67% rate of comorbid apraxia. Mm -hmm. So now we're dealing with not being able to execute a motor plan. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there has to be a combination of many specialized approaches Mm -hmm. with specialized training to be able to help, um, you know, patients with special needs and, and not only patients, students with special needs, because I think it's important and, and I try to advocate as much as possible. You know, you can do this stuff in the public schools. I've been doing it for 24 years, but you have to be a strong advocate. You have to know the law, mm-hmm. you have to know FAPE, and you have to be savvy in being able to fact find and look like I'm big on going to your state license, reading it yourself, pulling up ASHA's scope of practice, reading it yourself, mm-hmm. going to your board policies in the school, because a lot of therapists will say to me, well, I can't do that, Robin, because I'm not allowed to touch the kids at school. And I'm like, run that by me again. Why? <laughs> well, because they said so. Okay. Get me the policy. Mm-hmm. Right. There is no school district that I know in my state that I've been able to find because I fact found many when I do, you know, legal cases like independent evals mm-hmm. um, where parents are fighting the school system and wanting, you know, these services yes. or a motor, my functional feeding. Mm-hmm. And it always comes down to there's nothing in the board so- policy that says a licensed speech pathologist with a certificate of clinical competence with Oral facial myology, feeding, and oral motor disorders in their scope of practice isn't allowed to touch the student and do the therapy. Yeah. You know, so that that's a big baseline right there that yeah. we need to fix in that. And we know you are, you are the advocate of all advocates. So I think that <laughs> people will listen to this and they're going to go, ooh, I can use that. But, you know, if you guys know Robin, you know she's always fighting the good fight. There's all. Nobody lets you rest. I feel like every single day there's something. Yeah, no, and this week in particular, there's really been no rest. So, you know, and it's, it's not only advocating for my own profession, it's advocating for other professions. And, you know, when you're an advocate, you can sometimes be misunderstood. And, you know, social media, the person is not in front of you. You don't hear their tone of voice. And with treating 12 hours a day and running the OMI and, working for talk tools and being an author and a lecturer, being an advocate, I can sometimes be blunt about it. You know, um, I don't, sometimes it's, you know, you can't sugarcoat certain things and and there's a lot of debatable things, but you know, in the end, we're all here to help people. And I think that we need more advocates, especially for this special needs population because they're underserviced and they're underdiagnosed and, you know, you can't unsee what you know. And, you know, especially with advanced training and knowing, you know, when I figured out what a posterior tongue tie was, Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, if I went back 20 years ago, what did I miss? And I feel really guilty about it. 
Yeah. You know, I think I've always been um, on the cutting edge with teaching about tongue tie and, and the importance of you're not going to get anywhere in myofunctional therapy if you don't address this. Yeah. But, you know, it came up um, just this weekend. Um, I had um, quite a few friends over at, at um, Autumn's Tots class, and I know you just um, did a podcast with her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, someone had mentioned how at Talk Tools we used to teach that you could stretch a friend frenulum. And we did. I'll be honest with you. We did. And we, and we taught it even in special needs because we didn't have Marcus on and Martinelli. You set us straight. We didn't have those histological characteristics at that time. Mm -hmm. And we were seeing results. And when you look back on it, what were we seeing? We were seeing the results of pre-op therapy when you're able to work on that fascia, those fascial restrictions. Um, surrounding the collagen fibers mm-hmm. and we were get we were seeing results we just didn't realize that we weren't fully bringing the patient to the best level that they could be at we thought we could avoid the phrenectomy mm-hmm. and you know that is since retracted but it's part of the evolution of learning Absolutely. who knew back there that a frenulum was made of multiple tissues and that they were intertwined and that they, it was multifaceted and layered. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, again, looking at the fairy godmothers and how this evolution occurred, we knew something before we even knew it. We were setting the foundation, or I should say Sarah was, because she's the one who talked about it um, and wrote an article about it, that we knew that pre-op therapy was important. We just didn't know <laughs> that that's what it was then, you right, know? Right. And Sarah was really amazing at that, that she was looking under the tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, look how many reports we're getting just in patients in general, but especially on special needs. I must read at least 15 times a week for special needs kids, kids with a diagnosis of autism, Down syndrome, craniofacial syndromes, genetic syndromes, Oral peripheral exam could not be complete due to non-compliance. And you just kind of go, really? <laughs> yeah, well, because those strategies, and I get right. it. Right. So we're, especially if, let's focus on speech pathology, mm-hmm. such a, a diverse group, right? And we have different yeah. areas of specialty and we can't know it all. If I get mm-hmm. a referral for stuttering, I'm referring them out. Right. You no, know, right. I haven't done stuttering training in many, many years. And I'm 100% the same. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And when I had a student at school, I reached out to a colleague of mine, Cheryl Gaines, who is excellent with stuttering. And I had her mentor me. I mean, that's what we should be doing. Yes. So I get it. I mean, it might be really hard for a new clinician, especially a clinician that's reading all over the internet that non-speech oral motor exercises are an evidence base and there's no evidence. And look at the twists in the media just this week with the study coming out of Massachusetts in looking at breastfeeding before and after phrenectomy and the need for the functional assessment, I looked at that as, wow, okay, here's a start. They're recognizing we can't just do the release. We need a good assessment. They had lactation that referred. We had speech pathologists that were certified lactation counselors. They did thorough assessment measures. And everyone's focusing on oh, you know, not enough kids had a phrenectomy or they're saying that breastfeeding 
you know, um, they're diminishing the problems of breastfeeding. And the way I looked at it as a speech pathologist that's been doing feeding therapy for 25 years, tots is tots, but there are other diagnoses um, that come along with feeding disorders. There is low tone. There is hypertone. There is, you know, failure to have the appropriate infantile reflexes. Mm -hmm. And you know, these are the type of things that need to be assessed, not only in infants, but in special needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've had to bring behaviorists into my assessments and, you know, we might have to work for six to eight weeks to drill through the scenario of here's a picture schedule book. And first you're going to open your mouth mm-hmm. and then I'm going to put my glove on. And the same way we desensitize children on the autism spectrum to the tools we can desensitize them to the actual eval. Yeah. So I don't think it's fair to these kids to say, oh, they have behaviors, couldn't do the eval. The eval mm-hmm. can be an ongoing procedure mm-hmm. during therapy um, with an ABA approach, with an OT and PT who have specialized training in sensory integration therapy. Um, you know, I've done a lot of SI courses, but I'm not an OT or a PT. I can use right. some of these strategies but I always leave it to their expertise. Mm-hmm. could be something simple as positioning or having them, you know, in a sensory room to do the evaluation. So, you know, first step is definitely the eval. That, that could be the hardest part. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you make a really good point because like, like you said, I do not specialize in stuttering. I will never pretend to. And if I get a child who has a fluency issue in my office and I'm doing an eval and that just kind of came up during the eval and that's not necessarily what they came to me for, I'm not going to write, could not, you know, complete because of X, Y, Z. I'm going to say needs to be assessed further referring to a fluency specialist or, you know, I'm going to basically put in my reports, hi, this is where I know my limitations exist. And here, let me, let me get you who can really help you. And I, I think even if, you know, the evaluator, let's say they don't know what to do or Mm -hmm. they don't know what they're Mm -hmm. looking at. um, They can certainly say further diagnostics is needed. And I do find a lot of therapists do that, but For example, let's take um, a baby who's born with a diagnosis of Down syndrome. And I can talk about this very close to home because my best friend's daughter um, does have this diagnosis. A lot of people know her because she's on the cover of my feeding book with Lori Overland. And when Lacey was born, it was like finger in the mouth, (laughs) tots. Why? Because she's a little early. She has a genetic syndrome. She's going to be more at risk for having oral restrictions. Check the suck. Check the reflexes. Okay, this is what's good. This is what's missing. And let's start therapy right away. Early intervention being key. Her tongue was protruded at birth, low tone. She was not restricted at all. Um, And I even had Lori evaluate her for a second set of eyes but she needed a lot of oral motor therapy and a lot of feeding therapy and still receives such. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and her oral facial complex is looking terrific. You know, I, so, I saw her recently. She looks great. Thank you. Yeah. That's that, you know, preventative and early intervention. But if she was born with tethered oral tissue before I would rush to right away, okay, boom, we're going to do the laser. And obviously I'm literally, if I could go like zoom across the water. I could literally be to Scott Siegel's <laughs> office in less than 10 minutes, but unfortunately I have to go over the bridge. <laughs> or the and I mean, you know I how long that takes. Day, 
in 16 minutes. So he, that's how close he is. So I could zoom her right over to New York and get the surgery done. And I would know that she needs it. Mm-hmm. But especially because she has set, you know, um, low tone and special needs, I'm going to have to take even extra special care with her mm-hmm. because she's not going to have good lingual control. Right. And the, you know, um, the lip seal is not going to be automatic because of her low tone and her airway. Mm-hmm. So I have to be really careful and I have to do that pre-op therapy. So I think, you know, in special needs, a lot of the key here, and I know it sounds like a broken record because I'm always talking about it online and in my classes and parents question me all the time. Why pre-op? Why pre-op? Why pre-op? Well, one, it's very client-based, especially with special needs. They need to um, overcome their over-responsiveness. You need to be able to work that fascia to get the best range of motion that's possible and get them acclimated on a sensory motor um, level, especially if we're talking about a laser procedure and there's active wound management that the parents are going to be doing. We need them ready. Yes. To the caregiver. We need to train the caregiver. It's difficult enough for parents with neurotypical babies to do aftercare. Mm -hmm. Imagine a six-year-old with the diagnosis of autism, apraxia, and comorbid sensory integration disorder, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. (laughs) And then it's for the clinician. You know, as I just said, how many times, like I've had kids and believe me, financially, it's a money loss for me. If I schedule 90 minutes and I can't complete the eval and have to do another 45 minutes, I have to do it. I I can't charge extra for that. That is, I owe that to that patient because they might be, you know, climbing on a chair and screaming because Mm -hmm. I'm trying to give them an intraoral exam. That pre-op therapy for me is going to help me do that about and establish those baselines so that they have a successful release. Right. So this special population is not being talked about enough. Yeah. The therapy aspect in this population is 10 times harder mm-hmm. and more intense and needed than any other population we're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in the traditional sense, you know, um, people who come to you who have an OMD, let's say they're over the age of four, they can, you know, start with myofunctional therapy. You know, I, sometimes I see them, they're in and out of here in four months you know, and they're good to go. But my kiddos who are involved, I mean, they could be with me 12 months, 24 months. I mean, they could be with me for a long time. I'll tell you about a long time. I just graduated a patient because he was a patient that was coming to me um, with the public school system paying me because of all the needs he had. And he was tethered and it took a very long time to get him ready for the procedure. Dr. Yan did it. We did it with um, scissor and sutures because it was what was best for him. Yeah. And I worked with him from the time he was four and a half till 21 because the school granted him his services until he aged out of school. So that's how long the, you know, um, kiddos can be with us. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. But I'll tell you that in my practice, I have very few of those four and up neurotypical (laughs) in and out in four months. And when I did my onsite for my calm, it was really challenging, but also very rewarding. And it was great. Misty Bridges was my examiner and I adore her. And I think she is brilliant in um, oral facial myology and she taught me so much, but 
it really got my mind going because I had a lot of special needs patients that came in and I had kids that were under four um, that were either pre or post phrenectomy. And we talked through the parallel of, you know, this is called, um, you know, this exercise in oral facial myology, but when we're doing pre-feeding, you know, we're using a Z-Vibe and we're calling it this. We have the same goal. Mm-hmm. So we might do maintaining tongue lateralization from a sensory motor approach to feeding where an older patient is doing like windshield wipers and it's yeah. volitional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so it was really eye-opening for Misty as well because I go to the nth degree to, and it's with everything. I actually, in all of my patients' program books, I put the parallel of what we would call it and how we can make it volitional with mm-hmm. a neurotypical child. So she could really see that I understood the parallel of this is how you do it with a my, neurotypical Traditional myo, yeah. This is how you, here's the myo, uh-huh. the oral motor OPT. Yep, yep. We're going to wrap up this episode right here and continue with part two in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.